0: This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. In
1: 1968, American culture was roiled by a long, increasingly unpopular war in Southeast Asia. It was rocked by massive anti-war protests, the hippie movement, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It was shocked by the assassination of two leading American figures, Dr. Martin Luther King and Robert F. Kennedy. In 1973, the Supreme Court issued two decisions on abortion, Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton, which had a major influence on constitutional law, medicine, and family life in the United States. In the mid-1970s, with the election of an openly born-again president, a reaction to the revolution emerged called the Moral Majority. And like other social movements before, it was led by a preacher, and it was pitched as a war, a culture war, if the culture war is a boxing match, then it is a long one, with each side trading body blows, hoping to knock out the other. Right now, the revolutionary left seems to be winning, just as the Supreme Court of the United States lets stand laws permitting homosexual marriage, thus revolutionizing the definition of marriage, and increasing the social, economic, and legal pressure to conform to a new social norm. Here to help us think about the culture war, The Cultural Revolution We're Experiencing, The Role of Prudence and Jurisprudence, is Clark Forsythe. He's senior counsel for Americans United for Life, where he has served for 30 years. He's author of Politics for the Greatest Good, The Case for Prudence in the Public Square, and most recently, Abuse of Discretion, The Inside Story of Roe v. Wade. He writes regularly for National Review Online, First Things, and The Wall Street Journal, among other publications. Hi, Clark, and welcome to Office Hours.
2: Thanks. It's great to be with you.
1: Some Christians are suspicious of a word that you use frequently in your writings, and that is the word virtue, and they would rather talk about commandments. Help us to understand the idea of virtue and why it's important, and why do Christians need to recover this noun and this way of thinking
2: issue but let me uh, try to break it down for first of all it seems to me that we read about virtue throughout the old testament and the new testament you might think of virtue as an excellence or a quality so you might think of it as an excellent quality and frankly for the reasons you might admire old testament heroes like Esther and Nehemiah and Joseph and Daniel, we probably do because of their virtues, because of their excellent qualities. And in the Old Testament, the book of Proverbs is all about prudence, which is, in the classical tradition, one of the cardinal virtues, in fact, the preeminent of the cardinal virtues. And then if you go to the New Testament, first of all, in 2 Peter 2, there's a long Passage about excellent qualities. Peter says, "Supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control." And goes on through chapter one of Second Peter to talk about these excellent qualities. He talks about them as these qualities, and he wants to remind us of them. And then I would, uh, you know, refer people to Timothy and Titus when Paul talks about the qualities or the qualifications of elders and pastors he's mostly talking about virtues. So there are so many biblical endorsements for the key central need for virtues.
1: So when you talk about virtue, you're not, in your mind, imposing something on believers that comes from outside of Scripture, but it's very much a biblical category that you think needs to be recovered. It's absolutely
2: a biblical quality. Now, church leaders and theologians and philosophers have, I think, enhanced it and enhanced our understanding of these virtues because the Bible isn't kind of a philosophical or doesn't provide necessarily an, an ethical encyclopedia on what these virtues are, but church leaders and philosophers, Christian philosophers throughout history have reflected upon them and enhanced our understanding of what they are, but they're all in Scripture.
1: Sometimes believers have spoken as if what we really need to do is just recover the Ten Commandments, and so there have been big arguments about posting the Ten Commandments on public spaces and then taking them down. And now, of course, there are moves by uh, atheist organizations and even satanic organizations to post visible representations of Satanism in public spaces, which is a sort of a new phase of the culture war. Why is it not enough simply for Americans to sort of recover the Ten Commandments and to, uh, you know, get God back into the schools and the like?
2: Well... The Ten Commandments are the essentials, the Ten Commandments are limited, and they are kind of a reduced version of all of the law, and in addition, they are simply laws. But laws themselves don't help us to live well. We also need excellent qualities. Again, the people we admire in the Bible, we admire for their faithfulness and their godliness and their courage and their strength, and these are all virtues. Um, So the law, law is important. Uh, No doubt about it. Law is very important. The Ten Commandments are very important. But the virtues are needed. We might see the fruits of the Holy Spirit as virtues. Obviously, they are excellent qualities. So the virtues are necessary to help us to live lives of godliness and of righteousness.
1: So as Christians look for a way to engage the public sphere, law is an important and necessary category. And we do need to bring that to bear as we deal with various issues. But we don't want to stop there. We need to move beyond that to things like virtue and habits. Absolutely dispositions. One of the habits and dispositions that you have encouraged us to think about and to bring to bear on public life is that of prudence. That's right. What is it and why is it so important for public life and particularly for citizens and not just legislators?
2: Well, in its easiest definition it's practical wisdom, but I like the definition that a Christian philosopher gave, right reason about what is to be done. And the fact of the matter is that all of us every day pursue practical wisdom, you know, to get up in the morning and to have certain goals and objectives and to go through the day and to accomplish something. We all are either practically wise or practically unwise. People are going to in this season are going to uh, prepare a Christmas dinner and they're going to have uh, holidays and take trips and vacations, and they all require practical wisdom. Prudence is not just practical wisdom. It's practical wisdom oriented toward or aiming for the moral good. It's, so it's not just pragmatism. It's not just making the trains run on time. It's not just getting something or anything done. It's achieving the moral good either in our lives or in public life. And so it's something that is almost intuitive to us, And just as it's an important, excellent quality in our personal lives, it is also an excellent quality and a necessity in public life, because the question for public life is, why do we have this nation? Uh, What are the purposes of the law? What is the purpose of public policy? How do we define that purpose and goal? I mean, the easiest answer is the the purpose of public policy or the goal of public policy is the common good, but then how do we define the good? And prudence is necessary for practical wisdom oriented toward the moral good is necessary For all of that,
0: you're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California.
1: It seems like then prudence is important for citizens and not just legislators because citizens elect legislators. And in some cases, we elect judges. And so we have to have some notion of what good is, what civil good is, what common good is, in order to think well and to vote in a helpful way. Am I putting it correctly?
2: That's exactly right. I mean, I would say prudence for the citizens is more important in a democratic republic than it is in a monarchy or an aristocracy, because how can the voters elect prudent representatives if they themselves are not prudent, and if they don't have some understanding of the common good, how can they elect representatives who will aim for the common good? I mean, frankly, many of the qualities that we admire in, say, Abraham Lincoln, both his presidency and his prosecution of the Civil War, his Emancipation Proclamation, most of the qualities that we admire include his prudence at the very center of it, his practical wisdom in identifying what are the goals, the fact that he eventually got to imagine and sign the Emancipation Proclamation, and then the 13th Amendment, abolishing slavery. Uh, Why did he pursue those goals? And how did he identify them as the right goals? That was because of his judgment and prudence. And you also mentioned justice. Interestingly, justice is another of the cardinal virtues. The cardinal virtues are prudence, justice, temperance, or moderation, and courage. But in the classical Christian tradition, prudence isn't just one of the four cardinal virtues. It is the preeminent. And so the practical wisdom of prudence determines in any particular situation what's truly just, what's truly courageous in this situation, what's truly temperate in this situation. And so without prudence, we can't really be just, temperate, or courageous.
1: One of the difficulties that Christians have sometimes had, and maybe particularly in the 19th, 20th, and now in the 21st centuries, has been sometimes, I think, a quest to achieve heaven on earth or something like it. In Politics for the Greatest Good, you quote Hamilton in Federalist 65, where he critiques this desire for perfection on earth. And he was criticizing what, in theological terms, could be called an overrealized eschatology or too much heaven on earth or more heaven than we can achieve. How does prudence relieve us, as Christian citizens, of the desire to accomplish heaven on earth via politics?
2: Well, I think there are two or three ways. The first is that part of being prudent means understanding reality, and to understand this real world, we have to understand that it's a fallen world. At the very least, it is a world of limits and constraints, and it is marred by sin, And we have to understand the limits and constraints that puts on what can be achieved in the fallen world. And frustrations are often due to unrealistic expectations of what can be achieved. And we can have more realistic expectations by experience in public affairs and public policy and, and political life. So uh, we need realistic expectations, and that's informed by our theology. I, I mean, AUL is an uh, American Jedi for Life that I work for, is, is a illegal organization. We're not a, a church organization, but my opinion here is informed by all of my uh, education and career in politics and public life and my study of theology and Christian theologians and philosophers throughout the centuries.
1: This isn't 1976, clearly. Uh, The moral majority movement seems to have collapsed and Some evangelicals are once again calling for a retreat from public life. That raises a lot of questions. First, is that a good idea? And I ask that in light of a long American tradition, I think, of Americans being disengaged from public life, particularly national public life, but even in some respects, local public life, civic life. Help us navigate that. For example, you see this in the uh, man on the street interviews, right? Some reporter will stick a microphone in an average citizen's face as they're going from one place to another and say, who's the vice president of the United States? And you get a blank stare. That strikes me as remarkable, but I think statistically, it probably isn't. So how do we think about
2: that? Well, first of all, I would suggest that the moral majority may not have failed as much as the objectives have been taken over by a number of organizations that simply have different names. And that that may involve churches, it may involve parachurch organizations, it may involve public policy organizations. But it raises a second point, which is how do we define political goals in this country as believers? What are good goals for public policy? And that's something that Christians. have long struggled with. And the fact of the matter is that Scripture doesn't teach or instruct us that we have or should have a theocracy today. America does not have the covenantal relationship with God that Israel did. And because of that, we have a different political situation. And what is, absent of theocracy, what is the best type of government we might have. I mean, we can talk about that, uh, you know, in the abstract, but the fact is, is that it's largely been determined for us by the federal constitution of 1789 and the state constitutions that we live under. That kind of establishes the big building blocks of our form of government, which is a democratic republic. And that rests upon the citizens. And as citizens, we actually have some responsibilities and we have some obligations, so we can't retreat. We are citizens, and we have some obligations. If we accept the shall we say, the benefits of living in a democratic republic, then we also have some obligations as citizens as well, and that is to contribute to the public good, contribute to the the common good. And that's a challenge we will always have, but we always have the obligation and responsibility to to be involved and to contribute to the good.
1: Let me ask a practical question. I wonder sometimes, and I think other people have observed this as well, I've sometimes wondered if the nationalization of politics hasn't helped to facilitate a feeling of disengagement among American citizens, where once upon a time, local politics may have been more important. Now, uh, so many issues seem to be decided at the national level, which for many of us seems very far away and remote and beyond our influence or control. Do you see any validity to that? And if so, how do we think about that?
2: that uh, obviously the public policy has gotten more nationalized or shall we say federalized and i think we really have to question whether that's been good for public life or for the common good and i would draw this interesting contrast think about the parliamentary system in great britain when there's a parliamentary system rather than a federal system of a national legislature or federal legisl- legislature and state legislatures, when you don't have uh, state legislatures and you have uh, eight, one national parliament, if you can't get things through the parliament, if you can't make changes in parliament, nothing really gets done. And it's been very difficult for the pro-life movement, for example, in Great Britain to make progress in parliament. L- look at Canada over the last 30, 40 years. Canada has a parliamentary system, too. And the the pro-life movement in Canada has not been very vigorous or strong or or successful. And again, if you can't get things through the Canadian Parliament, uh, you can't really make any progress. Whereas in the United States, since Roe versus Wade, uh, the Supreme Court established one kind of national law on abortion, which the Supreme Court dictates. Uh, But if you can't get things through Congress, you can make progress in the states, and the states can try different things, and the the states can launch initiatives, and we have a a more vibrant, successful pro-life movement in the United States than in either in uh, Great Britain or in Canada, and I think it's because of our federal system.
1: It's critical to get the gospel right because it is the good news of the work of Jesus Christ that is saving. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. Uh, we need the whole Bible. We need the whole message of the Bible. We need the help of the law. We need the crushing work of the law. We must never undervalue or underestimate the importance of the law. But it is what Christ did that is saving. And what by trusting in what Christ did, uh, we are saved. It is by receiving the gospel in faith that we're justified and all the other benefits and fruits of Christ's work
0: flow out of that. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church.
1: One of the things you have suggested is that involvement might actually help relieve some of the frustration that Christians feel with the political process.
2: I think that's exactly right. And it goes back to frustrations being due to unrealistic expectations of what can be achieved in this fallen world, what can be achieved in in our constitutional system. And if you have more realistic expectations, I think there will be less frustration. And realistic expectations are formed by experience and understanding and knowledge and just a better understanding of what can be expected in this world that we live in. And that experience and, and knowledge is gained by being more involved. I mean, at least we can vote, we can get informed about public policy, we can uh, do some reading every week, we can watch uh, certain broadcasts, and we can get educated online. I mean, uh, all of us, uh, obviously, we all lead busy lives and we can't get involved in politics 24-7, but I I think there's a certain minimal amount that is important uh, for us to be involved and to be uh, informed so that we can responsibly exercise our role as citizens.
1: You work for Americans United for Life, and you have observed that, though we're all aware of Roe v. Wade from 1973, we're less aware of Doe v. Bolton. And you argue that it's just as important. Can you explain briefly why we ought to know about Doe v. Bolton and why it's just as important?
2: Well, the simple reason is that Doe versus Bolton is a companion case to Roe v. Wade. They were uh, two cases, one from Texas One from Georgia, Doe versus Bolton was from Georgia, decided on the same day. But to understand our national abortion policy that the Supreme Court imposed, You have to read the two cases and the two decisions together because Roe v. Wade declared the justices created a right to abortion from conception to fetal viability in Roe v. Wade. But Doe v. Bolton said that even after fetal viability, even when the unborn child is viable, the states must allow abortion for any reason related to emotional well-being. And so Doe versus Bolton, by requiring the states to allow any abortion for emotional well-being even after viability, Doe versus Bolton is what gave us a national policy of abortion on demand from conception to birth. And it's what isolates the U.S. as one of only four nations of 195 around the globe. We're one of just four that allows abortion for any reason after fetal viability. And it's because of Doe versus Bolton.
1: So when in the news we saw not very long ago the horrors of the Gosnell case in Philadelphia. Even people who are ardently pro abortion or pro choice, when they saw what was going on in Philadelphia, even they were horrified. And yet, there would seem to be some connection then between Bolton and Gosnell. So that Gosnell didn't just happen. It wasn't just a sort of a one off thing or an oddity that happened despite the law. There's actually some connection between those things.
2: Absolutely. And it's because of Doe versus Bolton that the Gosnell scandal atrocity happened, and the Supreme Court is directly responsible for the Gosnell scandal. And one of the things that I think it's important for Americans to better understand is that the local uh, officials are not as responsible for the Gosnell problem as the Supreme Court. The justices of the Supreme Court dictate every aspect of abortion policy in every state and county throughout the country. And yet we don't attribute that responsibility to them. We don't hold the justices responsible, but they are responsible because they dictated abortion policy in every state and county in Roe versus Wade in 1973, and they still do today.
1: So the decisions, Roe and Doe, were really revolutionary in nature and have reverberated all across the country. So that gets back to the whole problem of federalizing everything. So what effect did these revolutionary Supreme Court decisions, which are still in effect, what effect did they have on our politics and the way that we talk to each other about civil life?
2: Well, I think they corrupted our discourse. They have impoverished it, and they have made it more difficult to talk knowledgeably about these subjects because even 42 years later, Americans don't, unless you're a lawyer, don't really understand what's in Roe vs. Wade and Doe vs. Bolton. Periodic, regular opinion polls show that the American people don't understand Roe vs. Wade and Doe versus Bolton. And why should they? They're very long decisions that are very arcane and obscure and technical. They're not coherent. They're incoherent. I mean, think about the local public policies. I mean, you drive down the street and you see uh, gas prices and you see them rise and fall. And you may wonder why, but uh, it's present to you and you understand it. Local taxes, you get a tax bill. You understand, if you read it, you understand whether your taxes are going up and down and you can inquire into that. But abortion policy has been set from Washington, D.C., and uh, it's obscure and it's rather remote And so because Americans can't understand and and don't understand what is in these intricate decisions, it's difficult to talk about it. And the fact of the matter is that before Roe v. Wade, the American states were protecting unborn human life in uh, property law and wrongful death law and fetal homicide law and abortion law. And the Supreme Court uniquely stepped in and basically abolished abortion law in every state and county across the country. And that's unique because if you think about virtually all the other bioethical issues, think about stem cell policy or or IVF or uh, reproductive technology or assisted suicide or euthanasia or end-of-life issues. Most, if not all of those, are determined at the state level by the governor and the state senators and members of the assembly or house that you elect and that we elect. We are ultimately responsible for those policies. But the Supreme Court uniquely took away abortion law and said, we're going to decide it from Washington, and they've dictated it for 42 years.
0: You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California.
1: And the topic itself is difficult to discuss. You know, even if we wanted to sit down and talk about it with our neighbors, it's intensely personal. It involves sex and reproduction and death. So there are hardly more difficult topics to sit down and talk with anybody than perhaps those three. And particularly when we combine those three, one gets the sense that we're not, as a culture or a nation, even prepared to have, as people like to say now, that conversation. So how do we move forward
2: people we elect at the local and state level, especially uh, as governors and state uh, representatives, they can shape abortion policy to some degree, but who is president and who is in the U.S. Senate shapes the future of the Supreme Court, and that's going to be very important in the next couple of years. The 2016 presidential and Senate elections are going to be very important. This uh, also leads to another re- reason or way that the Supreme Court has impoverished our discussion about abortion. And that's because on these public issues, the majority of people, I mean, the 50 or 60 or 70 percent of uh, the public in the middle, will form a majority to decide public issues from election to election and determine who's in the state governorship and the state Representatives, But the majority can't determine abortion policy because the court has not only taken it away from the American people, but has imposed a radically sweeping pro-abortion policy. But think about other issues. Think about immigration. Think about taxation. The courts don't determine those issues. Our elected representatives do, and we can influence their votes by who we elect. Supreme Court took away from the American people the abortion issue and imposed a radical policy that most Americans don't agree with and yet can't
1: change. In 1973, the court made, as you've explained very well, abortion on demand, a right in one fell swoop. In a unique way, as you said, should opponents of abortion or proponents of the sanctity and dignity of human life try to undo what was done in 1973 in one fell swoop?
2: Well, we can certainly try, and this goes to the question of uh, ends and means, or goals and means. We certainly should try to repeal Roe versus Wade. I mean, it has to be done before we can restore protection for human life on the abortion issue in American society. But the question is both, what are our goals, what are short-term goals, what are long-term goals, and uh, how do we get to them? So uh, I think we need big goals. We, our goal should be uh, for human life from conception to natural death. But how we achieve that is a question of both our opportunities and our obstacles. And I think that there's, certainly in a democratic republic, there's an opportunity to pursue the long-term goals directly if we can, or step by step, or by creating momentum by a little progress here and, you know, as as much progress as we can make this election cycle and as much progress as we can make the next election cycle. It's not a question of an intentional gradualism or intentionally going slow. It's not a question of, you know, what we desire. It's a question of the obstacles in front of us, and the obstacles are huge.
1: So we should have big goals because these are important goals. We're talking about some of the most important things in human existence here. And yet, as you say, there are tremendous obstacles. So it would seem that we're back in a sense to to virtues, that we need the virtues of perseverance and patience as we actively engage our responsibilities in civil life as Christians and as American citizens. So as we sort of bring this to a close, encourage us a little bit about the virtues of perseverance and patience. You know, here we are just past uh, the midterm election. And as you've mentioned, we're coming up to and now beginning to look forward to 2016 and the presidential election. There'll be more senators to elect and uh, more Congress people to elect. And the Senate, as you, I think, implied, will most likely be facing Supreme Court nominations. And then that will get to the very real business of ever getting at, revising, overturning Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton.
2: Persevere for these long-term political goals, these important and big political goals. We need to persevere because we all want a greater measure of justice in our laws and in American society. And in this fallen world, the reality clashes with the ideals that we want and the ideal situation we'd like to achieve. Um, But patience is needed because of the obstacles that are in front of us. Uh, The wealthy individuals and the wealthy foundations who fund abortion, for example, and want it because of population control, and the wealthy foundations and corporations that fund it, and the political organizations and parties that uh, want abortion on demand in this country. Those are all huge obstacles. And we have to understand how to change public opinion and change our politics to overcome those obstacles to achieve the greatest measure of justice, the greatest good possible in this fallen world. And there are some ultimate limits. There are some metaphysical limits. There are some limits set by creation and the fall that limit what we can achieve in this world, but we still need to persevere as patiently as we can to achieve the greatest measure of justice
0: possible. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.